out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 show on David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the singer, songwriter, bass player. It's the one and only Paul Shestain, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry and all the other groovy stuff. Has been in lots of indie bands from the 80s, including Choo Choo Train, Nines and also the Springfields and Velvet Crush and uh, was once on the Sarah record label, but is now releasing a new album as The Small Square. And this is with John Richardson and various other people as well. They did an album in 2015, which was titled, well, self-titled. But this is the follow-up, the second album, which is titled Ours and Others, which is going to be available I think as a digital download and CD, as you'll find out towards the end of this interview. But uh, yes, the album was released in October 2023, 10 uh, track sort of release. So uh, you'll find out more about that as we trundle through this little interview. So anyway, I'm in the UK. Paul is in Japan. I know, check us out. So um, yes, the quality is good. So there you go. So after several minutes of interest but casual chat, we get down to that exciting subject. But that was the early formative years. Paul, it's over to you. I'm going to say it was more like the the stuff from coming from down south in the early 80s um, from like uh, North Carolina, the DBs and... Uh, Mitch Easter, Let's Active, and uh, REM, and the, these kinds of things. I think that was really, I mean, you know, before that, when I was younger, I was into like the Beatles and Simon and Garfunkel and things like that. But I think really when I, when I first was, was uh, um, you know, starting to contemplate doing it or maybe even starting to do it myself, you know, make songs and do things like that, I think really um, that early 80s, like 80, 80, 81, 82, that was probably when I first sort of woke up and noticed you know how cool a lot of the stuff was before that it was just like oh the beatles whatever you know like um yes that was the sort of thing forever but but i wouldn't say that was sort of an awakening that was just sort of a becoming aware of maybe popular culture in general but as far as piquing my interest in doing stuff was really the early 80s um yeah stuff that i and did you did mm. your parents did they have any influence on your musical direction? Did they have any records or did they have uh, a no, not 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 so much, not really. Um it was maybe more my older brother. I have a, a brother who's six years my senior. And um so he had some singles and things around the house, like um the monkeys. <laughs> we had the, like all the monkey singles on Cold Gems and um beetles and um various you know the turtles and things like that that were of the of that time so i think i kind of got got into the stuff more through that yeah you know i heard i heard things those were older than i you know i was i was younger than i would have been to buy those records but since they were there i was like oh these are cool you know and and uh, they were all like pop you know pop records and i really um you know, instantly liked a lot of them. And the monkeys, of course, had the show and everything. So I was familiar yes, well, with that. We were very excited with the monkeys. The show just was brilliant. And um, yes, and then there were <laughs> things like the banana splits, which we also thought was. Oh, cool. yeah. But then there was yeah. the, I do remember seeing the Beatles, the films that would occasionally appear. And the Beatles still seemed quite amazing. And I had a brother who was older than me, seven years older. And I remember he, in the early to mid, I suppose it was more the mid 70s, had 
Sergeant Pepper, which at the time I just thought was quite an amazing album, but there was no cultural context about the Beatles. It was just the band, yeah. even though they'd only just split up and they were probably in their early thirties. It seemed like they were they would they were just old men who had already done their bit. You know, now you look yeah, back they'd and done think, in such a short amount of time. And I mean, it, what you're saying about no no context was kind, it's kind of great in a way because I remember like the Beatles um, animated you know the cartoon of it. I remember seeing that and I remember seeing Hard Day's Night and I couldn't really understand what they're saying very well. You know, it took me a while on that. But when I was young and um, it just seemed like out of nowhere and they were like from a different planet or something, you know, it seemed so foreign, but so great at the same time. But I didn't, you know, I didn't have any context for them at all. I didn't know anything about, you know, where they were from or um, the music that was happening apart from them, really, you know, so it was kind of really removed. But it made it sort of even more sort of fantastical in a way, you know. Yes, well, it, it was kind of. I did an interview with that um, a journalist called Nick Nick Kent, who started his kind of writing career in the early seventies, and you know became part of the NME. I think during the mid seventies, and um, he was he, he sort of said something which I thought was quite interesting because he said the journalists there were already kind of old, even though they were probably in their late 20s or early 30s, because they were still waiting for the Beatles to reform. So they weren't that bothered about the the punk explosion right. and the Ramones right. and the Damned. It was like, oh, you know, we're we're waiting for the Beatles to come back, you know. And he realised, right. and it was interesting how quickly culturally we can sort of be a bit like just old men or old women, can't we, in that sense of... Um, you know, hanging on to our glory yeah. period and not sort of, you it's know, true. Im- I mean, I think a lot of people, to some extent, really kind of freeze that time period, you know, in their, for better or for worse, you know, in their minds. And so that's the music that they continue to love, you know, even though they move on with their lives and things. It's really that period um, that they've kind of freeze framed, you know, and, and uh, that I think that's what makes you seem older then because you don't know what's going on, you know, contemporarily. You just yes. sort of know. Yeah, the thing then, you really know a lot about this thing, but it was like the, you know that that already happened, Gramps. You know, let's move on. <laughs> I know it's quite funny. What was the first gig you went to? What was the first concert that you sort of found yourself listening to? Um, let's see, like a proper gig would have been like something like, oh, wow, I don't even know. Maybe, uh, you know, I went, I saw Cheap Trick pretty early on uh in a in a bigger place though so it was it was past there yes you know it was when already kind of happening um that was an early one one of the things the the key thing for me was when it was probably must have been in the late 70s or maybe even 1980 probably late 70s and a friend of mine uh this friend of mine jake who's in this band called semi-sonic he's the drummer i went to high school with him and uh, his his older brother worked with this local band where I lived in in Illinois, and um, they at one at one point uh, his the band he was working with um, had a show at the the local rock club, and I was you know we were all underage so we couldn't really go in but we they they managed to get us in somehow his brother got us in somehow you know to the to the gig, and it was the first time I'd been to like an actual sort of rock show in a club, and. Um, 
it was pretty amazing experience. It was, just, you know, I liked I liked the band that, that he was working with for one thing, but just the the whole atmosphere and everything. And it was really my first taste of that, a place where I became, you know, ultimately very very familiar, you know, going forward. But, um, but like hearing uh, music blasting out of the PA, you know, it's skull shattering volume, and um, it was it was music that sounded cool, but I didn't know what it was. It was stuff like probably like uh, XTC drums and wires, period, and uh, things like that, like pop, rock, and maybe a little punkish stuff. And it was just out of the PA and just in the environment of the small club, smoke filled, and um, it really had made an impression on me, you know. And then that that band was a little bit like Cheap Trick in a way; they were like rock, but they were very melodic. And so that was all really cool, and uh, it it really made sort of a lasting <laughs> impression on me. And and I, you know, years later, I, you know, it, it found myself in clubs playing all the time in that same environment. But I just remember that first little taste of it, it was really pretty addictive, I guess. Yes. Oh God, absolutely. I I still sort of yes can sort of picture what, exactly what you sort of mean. Spending weeks looking forward to the gig. And turning up early and sort of even watching the support band, you know, you come a certain age when you think, no, I don't want to watch the support band anymore. But right. the, the early days, you want to you want to discover that new band, so you go and listen yeah. to the support. Well, you band. want everything that there, everything that there is to offer in that you know forum. You want like, okay, I got to have it, got to have yes. everything. And that that excitement when the lights go down and you know the band shuffle on, you kind of think they're probably going to be really showbiz and sort of dramatic, but you realize they're just shuffling on in years later and just try not to trip over anything. But then when they're yeah. there, you think they're gods, they're just absolute gods. Yeah. And and yet that's just another night and they've just had the whole day, they've had to maneuver, eat and bad food, try not to kill each other and um just get right. into another gig. But but your young mind sort of pictures it quite differently, doesn't it? It's just something definitely. else. You know, yeah, definitely. Yeah. The anxiety. Really a lot more, a There's lot a lot of anxiety if they're going to play the song that you love and all that kind of malarkey, you know. And right. yes, feeling very disappointed when they haven't. So um, yes, that's cool. So then, yes, as as the early '80s, you mentioned the early '80s, which is obviously my 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 great musical awakening. Because we, you know, in the UK, we had the wonderful world that was Margaret Thatcher in '79. So there was suddenly this conservative government that spread it spread itself right across the 80s and probably to the to, to today which is kind of bizarre but then we had the the Falkland war then we had the miners crisis then we had huge amount of unemployment so I think that's why there's a lot of indie bands in the UK at that point because you know there were so many young kids unemployed and we had things like the job seekers allowance that people could sort of be on and um yeah just basically just think well there's no alternative there's no future because we were all going to get nuked anyway because of yeah, we had the Green and Common sort of, you know, business as well. So, yes, forming a band was it. And then, you know, so we had the, you know, you mentioned things like Cheap cheap Trick and the end of the kind of 70s. But then we had that kind of post-punk period with bands like, you know, I don't know, the Gang of Four, the Nightingales, Public Image Limited. Yeah. Then, then there was the kind of goth scene that started with the Bat Cave, and then there was the Blitz Kids and New Romantic, and then slowly you had people like you know Simple Minds, U2, um, okay. Echo and the Bunny Men, and then sort of eighty three was the year of the Smiths. The Smiths were so big. So yes, what was that kind of moment like for you during the the early eighties? Well, early eighties probably was uh, saw me trying to like have like my first band, you know, and then we were. Uh, kind of new wavy band i think and but but uh really that was about i think 
my interest in making songs and things like that. Not as much live. I mean, we did play live, but um, my interest in it was more about making the songs. But we were, yeah, we were influenced by the stuff I mentioned earlier, like the DBs and, uh, you know, Let's Active and stuff and R.E.M., but um, also, you know, like uh, Echo and the Bunnymen and Devo and anything really that was like, halfway melodic we were influenced and probably covered a song by but but me and one of the other guys would would try to write our own songs and that's really for me like i think that's really what it was for for me always i was just interested in trying to figure out how to make songs and and then make them work and then being able to play them you know trying to figure out how to play them so um yeah i mean i stayed i stayed pretty much in the kind of new wave camp during that time i think so how did the bass find you or you find the bass um let's see uh well i started playing guitar a little bit first but then i think it was in school oh i know in school there was a couple different things they they one year in high school they wanted to form a um a jazz combo and i played trumpet so i was into jazz i liked playing jazz and you know trying to play it rather and so but this one director of the class wanted to um have a combo, a small group, and we didn't have a bass player. So I decided to try to do that, even though I couldn't really read bass clef music and you know, I didn't really know. I just sort of listened to some records and said, oh, they kind of just do this pattern. And and then I remember um I think I wanted to play like in the the um the the band, the pit band for the uh in high school, the performance, you know, the musicals that they would do, the yes. theater. And I liked playing, and I did play on, on trumpet. I played in the pit band sometimes, but I also, there was some reason I wanted to play bass for that. I'm not really sure. And I liked I liked Paul McCartney, you know, I liked that kind of, uh, that idea of that. So I thought, okay, well, I'll try, I'll try doing bass. So I bought a little, it was actually a Hofner copy from the like local department store. And it was really pretty, you know, crap, but, <laughs> but I learned on it and played it at the, at the school. And that was really my first thing um and then when i when i started the first my first band i didn't play bass i was still trying to i was playing guitar just because um i was trying to write you know write the songs and sing some too so yes um i kind of dropped the bass didn't drop it but i didn't i didn't play it as far as making songs and stuff were concerned until later until really till um we did velvet crush that kind of stuff yes so your first band was at nines where you did a single nines, yeah that's right. Like a top was your first single in the, and your first experience in the studio. What was that like? Because this was kind of 83, a great year for music. Yeah, that was very, uh, it was great. It was very exciting. Um, we played, you know, live a lot, lot locally and um, wrote songs and practiced a lot. And that's all we did really. So <clears throat> we decided to make a single. And this fellow uh, by the name of Mark Rubel, who was a, an engineer and producer in Champaign. Now he um, works in Nashville at the Blackbird Academy, um, teaching kids how to do things like that. But he recorded our single at his house. And he had this like, uh, I think it was like an uh, eight track tube board or some kind of cool thing that I didn't appreciate that much at the time, but now would really appreciate. And um, we just set up kind of live and did it and then overdubbed vocals. And it was, it was really cool. I, I loved that. I, I had already tried to do stuff. I had four track machines at, at some point and doing all that in reel to reels. And I, I loved the idea of um, capturing the stuff, you know, trying to make, make the records and make them sound cool. So I was really into that because he was, you know, 
older and um, uh, experienced at doing it. So we decided to make a little single. Yes. And we did it pretty much ourselves. You know, he he recorded it for us, and then we did kind of everything else ourselves. And um, I think it was on his label actually too, because it was the what? name of the studio. Pogo. Was that Pogo? Right. Yeah. yeah so so Pogo was his dog, and it was the name of the studio, Pogo Studios. And then he kind of started a you know kind of a label. <laughs> Just in, <laughs> but he was very nice. He is a very nice guy and a very uh, knowledgeable guy. I still have contact with him once in a while. Yes. But yeah, that was super super exciting to do. Yeah, and that was, was very fun. He made it very fun too. He's a, he's a really easygoing and. Uh, mellow guy and he made it really fun uh, experience to do and you know i remember he lived like right right by the train tracks and i think we had to like stop sometimes and let the train go by so, you know because it was so loud and and it wasn't really like a studio it was just a house with some stuff in it you know with his, a little bit of gear and but yeah it was a big deal for us you know because we had never done anything like that yes and then you did a kind of a extended cassette ep didn't you kind of <laughs> business um there was a cassette that uh rick mank did uh he started like a small short short-lived um cassette label and those were just uh i think those recordings were mostly the self-done recordings or something like that i don't remember or they were live or they were both i don't know where he called those from i can't remember what was on it exactly but those weren't um i don't think those were professional recordings on there Right. I, so did, really... I did do. I took a recording class at one point at, at another studio in town, and I did record a couple of songs of ours as you know as a project that we were supposed to do. Um, so those might have been on there. I, I don't really remember what was on the cassette. So was mm. your next band with the, the stupid cupids, or was it Choo Choo Train? Um, that's a good question. That all that stuff, David, is sort of like all intermingled and intertwined it was rick and and me rick mank and me just doing stuff and um he would always come up with these names and and he he really liked the idea of releasing singles so we would do you know thing and we'd figure out how to record it who could record it for us and then he'd decide which name to put it on it was kind of like that choo choo train mm -hmm. became a little more of an actual thing because we um we got um subway records to put it out in in england to put out yes stuff. So from bristol the that was a little more a little more of an actual band than the other things were just me and rick recording things and calling it this or that or the other you know um, so did you in the, that period between 83 to kind of 87 which obviously is the years of the smiths and um you know indie pop in this country was going wild wasn't it with people like the wolf hands yeah yeah no um, we've got a first box, we're going to use it. All those June brides. Did did you embrace the indie sound from the UK at this stage? Uh, we we did. Um, you know, coming back to the full circle to Sarah Records, that was a big influence on um, our thinking at the time of, of um, you know, what we were what we were kind of doing. Rick was very, very into that. And and I uh, exposed me to it even more so. And then I thought, you know, this is cool. And we liked the, you know, the spirit of all that and the, you know, the DIY-ness of it was cool for me. I thought I liked that aspect of it. And just like, and the, the, the stuff was all really, I don't know, it had a cool thought process to it all, I think. And we were, uh, it was very appealing to all of us. And also, you know, creation records and, um, 
a lot of that stuff. In fact, I don't even know what stuff in America we were listening to at the time. I don't remember it at all, but uh, we I know that there was a lot of British stuff going through our heads. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So with, with Choo Choo Train, you brought out This Perfect Day, didn't you, which was on Picture Book Records. And then right. that was followed by, uh, is it the the Briar Rose EP, which was on Subway at this stage? Right, the Briar Rose EP. Uh, Briar Rose is a, a song that Matthew Sweet wrote that we, he, he used to send uh, uh, Rick all of his demos. He still does, I think. He sends his demos to him and these were some just demo because he writes so much so many songs <laughs> and so this was a demo that we had of matthew doing it and we re-recorded it for that and then had some of our own tunes were uh, the rest of the songs on there but um so we did that the briar rose ep and then um the next one after that was the thing called high i believe yes it was uh that was an ep too wasn't it i think because that's I, right it's kind of um Wishing on a Star, My Best Friend, When Sunday yes. Comes, and Parasol. So that was your follow-up. on, And yes. again, it was on on Subway, the Subway label, yeah. which was, um, yeah, quite quite amazing. That was the Flatmates. So did you, had you come across the Flatmates by then? Yeah, yeah. We 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 knew of the, that stuff. And, I, you know, I'm not sure. Uh, if, again, this was, this was Rick's doing, I'm pretty sure, um, getting the record over to uh, Martin and... Um, you know, probably, probably Rick's the one that, that sussed that all out because he was really, you know, he would buy every available fanzine or whatever it took to find out anything about any of this stuff, you know? So, um, he was instrumental in doing that, all that stuff, getting it, getting our record in front of someone who might want to put it out. Yes, absolutely. That, because there was another kind of amazingly small fanzine flexi disc kind of um label which was whoosh okay. records wasn't it which you whoosh, had a yes. you shared a single with which was um which was quite amazing yes. actually wall of sand <laughs> uh, no it's eye of pilgrims isn't it yes right right eye pilgrims yes yes so with your the track that you gave them many happy returns this features the backing of is it darla brown on, on this uh, uh, I don't know. That was a demo of mine, actually. I think, and I don't remember much about it. You know, it was like a four-track cassette demo, and I don't. Uh, I can't remember, <laughs> David. I'm sorry. I can't remember what, <laughs> it, what what was on it. If it says that, then that's probably what it was. But yes, I don't, I don't remember off the top so of with, my head. I just remember. I think that was some kind of a demo, and then they needed a song. You know, they wanted. We wanted to do it, and we didn't have. Uh, anything at that particular moment so i think i i offered that up yeah because we wanted to be on it so quite wait a minute my um hard drive is bumping. so with um with the band you you're obviously quite flexible with sort of starting and again so the next so you go straight from there right into the springfields is that right uh right the springfields was another was was kind of rick's project really where he it wasn't as much of a co co-produced thing. It was mostly Rick's idea and his, and some of his songs. Um, it was the same group, but featuring kind of featuring him. And it was, so it was more in his taste and I don't, I didn't write that stuff. Um, I, I'd maybe helped him, you know, work on his songs, but it was sort of more featuring him. That was kind of the difference. Otherwise it was the same as Choo Choo Train, which is the same as the other, you know, things that we did. So that was um, him doing kind of a Sarah Records band, I think, you know? Yes. Kind of 
So, so is, that was directly inspired by that, yeah. So this is where you appear in Jane's book on on Sir Records, actually. So is this yes. this because I I sort of was reading about um, your relationship with Sarah, which is all positive. So you. They don't send you money, but they send you all the singles, or they send Rick all the singles that they release instead. Of, I, I think of, so. Yeah, I think that was right. Yeah, there's yeah. some which great... was fine, which was fine by him. You know, that was perfect. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, absolutely, and there's some great pictures of the band as well in there, and some bits and pieces. So, yes, you'll have to yeah, try and find. You'll have to try and find yourself a, a book. So, so at that stage, kind of the late '80s, things change again. Obviously. Um, Morrissey and Mar break up, which is horrendous. Um, and then, you know, the, the the world of, I suppose, ecstasy comes along. There's a new musical kind of chapter with the kind of Manchester scene from Manchester. And um, right. suddenly everyone's getting to it dancey. And then we had grunge from Seattle. And then we had that sort of shoegazing scene with people like My Bloody Valentine and Silverfish and the Faith Healers and all those kind of groovy things, slow dive. How did your kind of musical direction sort of get influenced at this stage? Um, well, that's a good question, because that was right around the time we were starting to do Velvet Crush, late, the late, like 89. <laughs> 89, we moved. Uh, Rick and I both lived in Illinois in different different parts of it, but um, and we lived in the same town for a little bit. But we decided at that point to move to the East Coast of the U.S. So we ended up in Providence, Rhode Island where we stayed with our future guitarist, Jeffrey. And we that's when we really started doing, um, doing seriously trying to do Velvet Crush music. And, uh, you know, I don't, I don't remember what, I remember working on the stuff a lot and I don't know what, we were listening to so much different stuff. Rick was like a, a font of, you know, just uh, all different musical influences and stuff that he was into and we would hear all that and we were listening to some things on our own and just like it all came together uh and uh, the thing about that first record is it's very the first velvet crush record is, is very um there's a few songs that are mine that were like directly from a demo because we didn't have quite enough songs you know we we just sort of did what i did on a demo there's a couple of songs like that but for the most part the songs were really very collaborative between the three of us we went into the space and hammered out the stuff you know starting from someone's seed idea or core idea or maybe someone had a larger piece of an idea or even maybe most of a song or whatever it was but we all three you know banged on it and uh, uh formed it into something and, and it was the most like that of any of the records yes. and it has found the songs are different, I think, from any of the, the records and the direction. And part of it was due to what, you know, what was going on at the time, I think, um, in the world around us, you know, the, the songs, the music that was happening, but also just because of that, that process um, really made it be a certain way, you know. And so the songs, I don't, I, I can't even tell you who may have started the idea for one song or another, you know. So we would just go in and we'd mostly bash out how you know how that song went figured out make an arrangement and then generally i would write lyrics for it but sometimes one of the other guys had lyric ideas or start of, a, of an idea or something and you know we'd put it together yes. but um but i'm not sure really what directly we were because once that process started i was so kind of immersed in it from that point forward um that i personally wasn't listening to a bunch of records i would hear stuff that 
you know, Rick and I lived together. So I heard a bunch of music that he was playing and interested in, you know, so I heard a lot of that stuff, but I really had, um, I had blinders on a little bit more than probably the other two guys, just because I, I was constantly kind of working on, um, finishing things that we had or starting things that we needed that we, you know, wanted to do. Um, so I, and I don't know what, I don't remember being super influenced by a certain thing or another. Um, I remember liking a lot of stuff, but I don't, you know, I don't remember thinking like, oh, this is, I want to do this or, you know, like, you know, trying to copy it or cop it. I don't, I don't remember that. I was yeah. more in the mind of thinking about like the kinks or something like that, you know, <laughs> like that's, that's in the, the first record reminds me of the kinks for some reason, the sound of that and the sound of some of their, their earlier things maybe, or something like that. But um, that's more where I was at, you know, not, you not so contemporary. Because you did two singles on the bus stop label, didn't you? If not true, and Ash and Earth. So then, from then, from that kind of recording, was that where Alan McGee or somebody from Creation Records found you? Um, you know, I think you know they found us. I'm pretty sure that Rick sent um, McGee something you know, send him something. And it was probably, it was probably that <laughs> single. Cause we were actually over there. We were, we choo-choo train played in England. And I remember the single was just out or coming out or it had just been out or something. And so he might've even sent them some of the first record that I'm not sure what he sent them to be honest. I don't remember. Cause we had, we were working on that, the Ash and Earth. I mean, um, if not true, was uh, recorded by Matthew Sweet. That was one of the first things we did at his little. He used to live in a, in Princeton, New Jersey, which was not far, not too far from us. And so we would go over there, and he had a little demo studio in a little house that he rented, and um, we had him record that. And that's in that ends up how we recorded the whole first uh, record, what became the Velvet Crush first record. So um, I'm not sure how much he. Uh, rick sent to mcgee but he sent him something and then that got us um they licensed that first record once it came out it, it was we were on an american uh, indie label and then i think it was licensed to creation also and they just put that it was a one-off deal and they put that put that out over there because i know alan mcgee because so they, they 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 had that sort of period in the 80s which was you know doing okay but then they did really well when they signed um Alan, uh, not Bob, Bob Mould's Sugar, because I think yeah. they, because Bob had done his solo albums, which hadn't done very good in, I think they were on Virgin, but they weren't doing very well. And then he had Sugar and wasn't doing very good trying to get a record deal and was trying to make out that it was going to be massive. They had been massive and everyone realised they hadn't been. So I think Alan McGee and Creation managed to sign them quite cheaply. And obviously the first album did such good business. So um yeah that must have been quite a good time for creation records because they they sort of yeah that's cool and we were we were really uh really excited to be part of that whole thing i remember i think i was at the offices one time when bob was there right around that time it seems like he or he was i can't remember it was something really close in the timing or he was actually there the same day we were there but um so anyway through that the beginning of that um that started the relationship and then um after that we talked about you know doing a record for them like them signing us which is what what 
came to pass eventually, which we were super excited about. Uh, you know, so we would hang out with McGee. McGee was the one that signed us and really, I think the only person at the label that, you know, had any sort of idea what, why he signed us, you know, I felt, I felt like we were really the sort of step redheaded stepchild of the, of the label. <laughs> Um, yes. cause I, not, nothing against anybody. I just don't think they got what, what he got about it. You know, he, he liked us in some way. And, um, I don't know. I never asked him what he, you know, why he signed us, but, um, uh, because what happened was once he, once he left, which was, um, the, the worst possible timing for us, right. When teenage symphonies was due to come out, uh, he took a little sort of leave of absence there. And everyone at the label was sort of just saying like, oh, that, you know, we real, there was really a sense of, yeah, sorry, <laughs> you know, like, we don't know what to do. Uh, you know, they, they just never got why McGee signed us, I think was what it was. He, we were his thing. And, and yes, um, he had a plan and he was really, you know, he really led the, the label, you know, like his, his taste and his thoughts and ideas really drove the stuff. And then when he was gone, everyone was kind of like lo looking for what, what they should be doing. And um, they didn't know where we fit. It was too hard. You know, I think like too difficult to try to figure that out. So we just kind of got left in the lurch at that point. Yeah. But um, we were still honored to be, you know, involved with the label because it was a great label and um, a lot of great people worked there and a lot of great, obviously bands and music came out of it. So because um, the other the other person you'd met at that time was David Barker, wasn't it? Of um, was yep. it Glass Records. You you had some dealings with him with a single, didn't you? Which you covered a team. Yeah, yeah. We put out we put out a record on his uh, on his label. Yep. Yes, and and you probably can see that he's still he's still quite active today, dear old Dave Barker. Yeah, and yeah Adam McKean. Fairly recently, I keep up with Dave a little bit. Yeah, yeah. That's great. I'm glad he's still doing stuff. So once once your second album on creation came out, were you where did you go then? Because in the UK we had obviously the Brit pop period was kind of heating up with the Blur, Oasis, Suede, all the yeah, classics. That's, you know, we we did some touring. We toured quite a lot for that. We were on the road for off and on for like eighteen months, I think, for Teenage Symphonies. Uh, we spent some some time in the UK quite a bit, but yeah, that was really sort of happening. We played. We ended up playing with. Uh, a teenage fan club doing a tour or two with them and then we toured in europe and we toured in the states we did some touring with um uh, oasis early on in the in the states we did about um, a week of shows with them in the sort of upper midwest area right and um, so we just did that we worked it it didn't really do much in england because it got sort of you know absorbed by all the the stuff that was happening there and then we didn't really get a super great amount of promotion there because of the, the you know mcgee being gone and also and so those two things happening at the same time was kind of like um didn't help us all that much but yeah. we still got the but we were the thing that happened because of the creation deal we were automatically on sony 550 in america which was an epic uh sub label so we were on basically sony and so that helped us be able to play all over the place for a little while you know like that that helped us uh fund playing all over the place because basically what we did was just we always played in america and we we did our own shows we booked our own shows and we did everything ourselves this gave us a little bit more to work with on that so we expanded it and we played all over the states and 
in Europe and stuff in Japan. And um, we were on we were on Sony in Japan also as a result of of that um, creation deal. So so that helped us quite a lot in, in other ways. But we were just on the road for forever, kind of off and on doing that. You know, we'd come home for a few days and leave again for another leg. You know, and I remember just not unpacking my bag, you know, when I'd get home and be like, okay, we got to leave on Friday. You know, it's like that kind of thing. So it was, it was uh, the time, the time of doing that. And that's the only time we really ever hit it quite that hard. But, you know, we were also at the same time supposed to be having songs for a second record because we had a two record deal with creation. So Teenage Symphonies and the next one. Yes. And, uh, so we got to the point where we needed to start doing that and we really didn't have complete songs done, you know, because we spent so much time on the road and I hadn't quite worked out how to do both things at the same time. So, so that put us into a stage three or four or whatever of the band and trying to um, figure out how to do what we were going to do and make songs and make a new record. And, um, you know, and we, and plus the sort of disappointment of, the fact that what happened with Teenage Symphonies wasn't what people were hoping would happen. And, you know, we wanted to do more with it as well, but um, just, I, I think our, our dealings with uh, Sony in America were, it was, it was just a rude awakening of it's the age old story. Now that, you know, now that I've been there and, you know, every yes. artist that's ever been signed has the same, probably the same story, but, but, you know, they just basically pulled the plug after a certain amount of time because the numbers weren't where they wanted them to be. And that was that, you know, so we were like, oh, all right. <laughs> you know, what about the stuff we talked about doing? And, you know, like all this stuff just was out the window and unceremoniously. So, yes, it's a, it's a cruel. Do you own the music of that period? You know, the rights and the publishing and the. the we the don't. Tapes? We don't. Own the, the Teenage Symphony stuff is not ours. That's uh, it's owned by Sony. Right. My God, that's and they, you know we we co-publish with them, but they they own the the bulk of the pub, you know they they administer the publishing and um so it's not really ours. We own all the other stuff in our oh, the records. We own the records. The publishing up to that point we is co-split with them with Sony, but yeah, but we we do have possession of all the other records at least. So well, that's good. That's good. Did did yeah. members of the band work with Stephen Duffy at this period or? Was that well? We did because what happened was um, going back to Teenage Symphonies. So we were in uh, uh, North Carolina at Mitch Easter's studio in Winston Salem. It was the old one called the Drive-In, the one he used to operate, which was at his parents' house actually. And so <laughs> we recorded recorded some stuff at another studio and then brought it there, and then we recorded some other stuff at Mitch's studio. So we were we were working on uh, overdubs and mixing there and. Um, we got, since we had a budget, you know, pretty much like a major label record budget, we, we got people to come play on it that we liked. <laughs> and so, um, among those people were, um, Steven who came, he was, um, uh, I think he was up in Canada doing some writing with bare naked ladies guys. Right. And he came down to, um, uh, to, to hang out with us and work with us. And we, asked him to finish one of the songs like i had, I had we had a song that we had recorded we had all the music for him, but we didn't have all the lyrics and the melody kind of worked out yet and it was already tracked partially so we asked him if he would take a stab at finishing it out which he did because he's you know can do that he's great brilliant guy and then he ended up singing background vocals on a lot of the songs well you know because he was just hanging out around there and um 
helping us, you know, being a good, a good vibe and a, another set of ears. And it was, it was very cool. He's a great guy. I love Steven. I've seen his new record has come out and it's actually sounds really good. Yes, he's very prolific and um, obviously went on to work with so many other artists during that period. So, so, so anyway, um, during that time, um, you know, he got to know Mitch and they actually started his record right after that. So he, the the record that became, uh, I think it was just called Duffy, with had like a London Girls and Sugar High and those songs on it. And um, they started recording it there and Rick and I played on the basics of uh a lot of it i may i'm not sure all of it or not i don't remember if we did all every song and then he after that he took it uh back to uh back home back to london and and started working with uh, another producer there you know finishing it out but but actually it started there kind of as a, almost like an extension of that um the record that we had been doing yes God, that's amazing. Yeah, it's just quite a nice little Great. touch then. So then, then then in this country, we were going from the sort of the wonderful world of the John Major years to the new label <laughs> period with Tony Blair. So obviously things were getting, and we had Cool Britannia. And then you brought out heaven, Heavy Changes, didn't you? So what was that um, process like for you recording, writing and recording that? Um, well, that one was the one where we didn't have the songs for it yet. So we we spent a lot of time working on it. Um, the song, song-wise, um, Jeffrey and I started writing together quite a lot because I had pieces and he had pieces and we'd get together like every day and kind of bash out some stuff. So then we had, uh, we did it in a couple different uh, sessions, I think. So we had, we had part of it and we went down to Mitch's and we started recording. Oh, and we added uh, a guitar player, Pete, this guy, Pete Phillips, who played with us in, uh, as a lead guitarist. So he was a part of the mix at that point too. So some of the songs on the record, we kind of recorded in a live fashion with the, the band playing live without the singing, you know, all at the same time, a few of the songs were like that, which was cool. But um, after we had done the basics, uh, all the songs all weren't all done. You know, they didn't have lyrics and melodies and singing and stuff on them. So I didn't have it done yet. So I, so Rick and I, and this seems crazy now, but we actually lived at Mitch's house. Now this is, he'd moved the studio to um, his house and it was inside of his house where it is now, although now it's in a separate building. But at that point it was in his house. We lived with him and stayed there for probably like a month. Right. Some, which I can't even imagine as being him. I can't imagine, you know, having people do this, but he allowed us to do this. So we stayed there. And I would just work on songs all day. And then uh, when I got something kind of finished, I'd go in and track vocals with him. And he would, you know, we did some overdubs and stuff too. He did stuff for us. He played guitar and keyboards and various things. And so we were doing that kind of stuff. But my main goal was to kind of finish the songs and then sing them. Uh, so it was a little bit of a weird, it was weird. It wasn't bad, but it was weird way to, a weird way to do it. Um, and I cannot believe he allowed us to just kind of be there and hang out. So we just kind of had like our little men's club there at the right. Kind of like studio. a residential studio, wasn't it? Yeah, it, it was actually really fun in a way that the you know being under the gun trying to write the songs wasn't fun, but but just being there with him, he's a really cool guy and um, um, interesting. You know, it was interesting to be there and and fun and very different. So it just you know we sort of took a long time doing that stuff. And then finishing the record, um, Creation didn't want it, they told us. So they they said, no, we don't want to put that out. 
but they let us have the record to do with as we you know saw fit or were able to do yeah so um that was a bummer that you know we weren't on creation anymore but we took the record and we were able to release it uh in various other ways so it came out it's kind of like a Rick, Rick always calls it our blues record. I'm not sure it's our blues record, but maybe, maybe it is. <laughs> well, yes. The cover's a bit weird, isn't it? It was a bit of a strange. Was that the smashed up car? Yes. Did you? Did whose idea was that? Uh Rick did the cover with uh, some with a graphic artist. I don't. I don't know who, who the other person he worked with was. It might have yeah. been the person we worked with on on Teenage Symphonies. I don't remember, but it was his. I let him, you know, he, he dealt with that stuff at that point. So Yes, absolutely. Then, so yeah. obviously, as, as we were trocking up to the Millennium Bug and worried about the end of the world and all that kind of malarkey, you you actually get the end, stamina and energy to um, bring out another album. So obviously your experiences of uh, Teenage Symphonies to God were was pretty good because mostly, you know, bands at that stage when they're sort of, you know, slightly scraping and and desperate to sort of write and and sort of keep it together, kind of give up. But you've obviously got a lot of resilience at this stage. Well, it did take its toll, and uh, at that point, um, you know, we were on tour in Spain at one one point around that time, and uh, that that was kind of the last show that we did with Jeffrey, our guitar player. He he kind of called it a day at that point, and um what was the next record was that soft sounds maybe uh, it was free expression free expression okay free expression right so free expression was a yeah we, we uh it was just down to rick and me again kind of like back to the beginning and we uh i had some songs a few songs and he had some kind of ideas and i just went out to la rick had moved to la at this point and Matthew Sweet had moved to, to LA also. So they were both out there. I was still on the East Coast. So I went out there and we, um, Rick and I went into a rehearsal space and bashed out a few arrangements to some things that we had. And then we brought what we had into Matthews and um, started working on it with him. So it was really just the three of us putting it together. Matthew would record and, and play stuff as we asked him, you know, it's like, would you play bass on this? You know, would you sing on this? Would you, whatever, you know, whatever we, it was just the three of us kind of. And then we, I think we had a few other people come and contribute um, various bits like, um, Oh, I think uh, our friend Greg Lease, the ACE pedal steel guy came and played on that. He played yeah. on Teenage Symphony. He's so, so amazing. And I think he played on that record. I can't believe we got him to do that, but he was our friend. So he did. <laughs> <laughs> and um that was kind of our just restart kind of doing an la canyon sunshine record there with a little bit of a country tinged vibe to it yep a little, uh, little canyon rock there and um yeah we had some steel on there and uh yeah it was our it was like a new start kind of thing i guess but you know we're sort of just too dumb to quit i guess you know like that kind of an idea where we just i, I just keep i want to write songs and i always do whether we have a where I have a viable project or not, I still make recordings and I, you know, I have a home studio and I make recordings and I write things and I have ideas. So we kept doing it. And then uh, that takes us to, I guess, Soft Sounds, right? Is that now it's Soft Sounds? Soft Sounds now is going a, to be yes. a solo record. Like I was recording stuff for, I was going to release as a solo project. And uh, I got, you know, fairly far into it and song wise. And then Rick rang up and said, you know, we, 
I want to, you know, we should think about putting a, a, another Velvet Crush record out. And I said, yeah, I just, I mean, I have some songs I was going to do for the solo thing, but that's really all the material I have. And so I sent it to him and we used that as the basis and um, added a few more things. And again, did it. I did a lot of, so a lot of that was recorded at my house by me. And then we took it and augmented it uh, at Matthew Sweet's um, home studio there. Who's always nice enough to accommodate us in our <laughs> <laughs> work with us. And we had fun doing that. It was, it was very casual working with Matthew and, and he's like, you know, our, our brother. So it's a, uh, it was always fun to do, but he really helped us, you know, he helped us. I'm not sure we've been, would have been able to continue doing that. Like you were saying, you know, without his help in, you know, actually saying he'd recorded for us and, um, it gave us just enough, you know, help to get it over the top, I think. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the, the perseverance and stamina of the band is, is quite amazing because you then bring out your final album with with um, Velvet Crush, which is this one, which is, is it titled, um, it's Soft Stereo Blues? Stereo Blues. That's it. So, At that stage, this is 2004, um, Yes. Did you feel like when you were recording it, this was going to be the last project that the the band were, were going to do? Um, I don't know if I ever thought of that in, in those kind of concrete terms, but, um, you know, we were living in different places at that point. He was in L.A. and I, I had moved, I think by then I'd moved back to uh, Illinois and we recorded the record back in, in Illinois and the, the concept of it was um, to kind of do it with Oh, people that we knew from the scene from there from before like from before we ever left there you know and so the guy that recorded it is this guy adam schmidt who was an old friend of ours and rick was in a, a band with him for a short time at one point and um adam uh is a he was sort of like a wonderkin you know uh record singer songwriter record engineer producer and he he had a couple of uh major label albums back in the day and um but since then is pretty much you know, does just sort of does recording for people in production things like that so we asked him if he had recorded for us and he said yeah so we we did that and we enlisted other people that we knew from our past you know from bands that were around champagne and guys that we used to um you know hang out with and like like their music so we did that and uh i i worked a lot with adam kind of on my own with that after we sort of did some basics, I worked back and forth with Adam in my home studio, taking stuff in and flying stuff into his system and, um, you know, dealing with the odds and ends and doing the vocals and all that stuff. So it was a little bit of a kind of just, it, I, I did, I was doing a lot of it kind of by myself and Rick would come, come out every, every now and again, he came a couple of times to, you know, contribute and to see what's happening, but it was mostly kind of me and Adam putting it together and uh yeah i don't know it was i guess there was kind of a sense of not sure what we're going to do after this but but I, while i'm making it i'm not thinking you know this is the whole thing i'm just thinking like let's you know maybe let's try to make a cool record you know that's what i always try to think yes did you um did you tour with that album at all uh no i don't think we really played after you know after heavy changes time we, we maybe did an appearance or two with just Rick and I with, you know, with Matthew or with somebody like a, the, you know, pop overthrow thing or something. I think we played one time, but, but really we didn't, 
we didn't really play again until just, you know, like in 2019, we played all, all three played together again for the, for the first time in quite a while. So, yes, that must have been amazing. So 2005, what happens then to your kind of musical journey, life journey? Um, I wasn't, yeah, the band wasn't really doing much. And, um, I don't know, I was kind of learning to record stuff more, um, working on, engineering and stuff like that and i was still writing but i didn't really have a i didn't really have a thing you know in mind that i was working on at that a little drifting a little bit you know but still trying to work on my stuff yeah and then uh then a couple years after that i well not long after that actually i met my my wife and we ended up getting married a couple years later and then that sort of took me on a different kind of journey for a while all, all the while still working on music and things like that but not um you know not publicly so not really out out in the wild doing that except we would still play with matthew you know as his as his band rick and i yes. would still do but uh but no no real focused velvet crush stuff and you know i'd make demos always and still working on that stuff but yeah it was a little bit of a you know coming down off of the the fact that the band sort of was gone for for the most part, you know, for all, um, for all purposes, it was kind of gone at that point. So, you know, I was, I was bummed out about that because it was really a big part of my thing up, up, up to that point. So it took some time for me to come out of the spin. I think of that. Yes. It, it must be quite a, a strange kind of experience. So then you work with John Richardson, don't you, for another project which is called the small square so where where did you and john get together or how did you get together john's an old friend from way back from before i did velvet crush um he, he's from champaign illinois also and so we used to we never played in the same band together but we were on this in the same scene always uh you know he played in some different bands and i played in in nines and um so he played on, uh, he did play drums on my solo EP that I made, this song called Halo. And that's probably the first thing we recorded together. But apart from that, we didn't really do much. And, you know, when I was in, just in Champagne there during that, that in between time, I was kind of making songs and I'd make demos. And uh, I don't know, we just were talking about it one time. And I think we got together with some other of our friends, like that guy, Adam, we got together with him and, diddled around you know tried to see if there could be something going on there and it, it didn't that didn't really take off but john and i thought well you know maybe you and i can work on some stuff together and so we started doing that kind of you know yeah. casually at first um but we started making some recordings and then um after a while we had a few recordings and that we had kind of ideas and i had i had a little bit of a back catalog of a few songs that we could sort of use and redo or whatever you know whatever it took to make them and, and then you know, we kind of decided to make it more real and say, let's, let's, let's get, let's make up a name for the group yeah. and, and, you know, and put, put songs together and make a, you know, try to release a record in some way. So we did, that's just what we did. And, but it took, you know, that, 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 that record, the first small square record, um, the songs that comprise that are, some of them are old demos from way back. And some of them are newer things that we had done together you know, like there's one song that I actually really like on, on the record. It's called Save My Life, SML, I called it. And it was an old demo that I had done in Rhode Island even. Right. And I played drums. I'm, I played drums on the original version of it. And I wanted to keep some of the stuff on the track because I liked the vibe of it and some of the stuff how it was. And so 
I played it for John. I said, I have this song and um, I want to keep stuff, a lot of stuff on here if I can, but it's got really terrible drums on it. And I don't think I did it to a click track or anything like that. You know, I didn't have that, that much of a technological setup at that point. <laughs> so yes. I was recording on ADAT tapes, I think at that time. And, um, you know, I asked him if he could put drums on it and he said, I said something you know similar. You can tell what I'm trying to do. Something that's kind of along those lines, and and he said, "Yeah, sure, I'll try to do that." And one of the things about John is he he has the ability to kind of uh, be able to play along to things somehow and adjust, make micro adjustments to, you know, accommodate your the you know the tempo changes and whatever happens. And he he's really good at doing that. It's one of his like superpower things. So he was able to do it, and it was uh, you know I can't even tell that it wasn't the original thing and um it made me it made me think yeah this song we can we can definitely use this song and i really it's one of my favorite ones on that record just because i i like the the whole the vibe that i liked about it is still there and we were able to add to it but there's some newer things that we did uh on there but the release of that album was um on a small label a small japanese label and it was a very small release on cd only and so after we got the rights back a couple of years later, I just kind of put it out, you know, myself and really nobody knew about it. I think, <laughs> <laughs> you know, pretty much nobody knew. So, so then, you know, fast forward to nowadays, you know, this last year, um, and John has a full, fully functional commercial studio now. And he, and he started a, a kind of a label arm of it and secured distribution, digital distribution, at least, um, through uh, a major um a major distributor so i said hey maybe we can re-release the first record you know like yeah and so so people can actually find it or you know it's you know and i and it wasn't like uh, and we did and it didn't really make a big splash or anything but i felt at least like okay well it's there now you know now i got it you know in front of anybody that wants to find it can find it now instead of it being like a weird relic that no one you know that someone so, has to dig up to hear. Is it on Bandcamp now? It is on Bandcamp. Yep, yeah. that's the remaster. So we, it's, I had Adam remaster it, and um, we I added a couple of songs, and that's the newer version of it. Yeah. God, that's fantastic. So it's it's all there. Yes, I can see it. And I kind of used it for my idea was to use it as kind of a precursor, like a ramp up to the release of the new record, which I scheduled then for later, which the new record came out in. Um, uh october 31st so there was a few months in between where I, my idea was that it was sort of like you know break break the ground there for that one i'm not sure that really worked that way but it, it was good for me because i kind of learned more how to do the stuff while working on the first record you know the as far as the marketing and the promotion of it and that kind of stuff so yes so how did um because that was that was kind of re redone this year so how was lockdown for you how did you kind of navigate that period of bizarreness well you know that's so we we had ours and others mostly done uh by by that time or right around that time and so that's when i was trying to get people to put it out right so i'm trying to get somebody to put out the record and then that kind of changed people's ideas about what they were going to put out you know and made it even worse even more difficult for me to find that that person to do that so um I spent that time trying to find the person basically and, um, and finishing up mixing, finishing the mixing of that record. And we got it mastered and stuff. So it was ready to go, but I couldn't find, I was close a couple of times, but I couldn't really find the person 
to take the plunge on that. And so once things settled down a bit more, um, we decided to, to put it out on John's label and and try and um, you know promote it in a slightly more more beneficial manner and just see what we can do. But my I, my ideal thing was to get somebody else to do all that because <laughs> it's not uh, that's not my forte. But um, I'm learning. Yes. So what what sort of project? What's the project that you're working on at the moment? At the moment, well, the you know the next uh, I guess it would be the next small square thing. I, I just I just sort of keep doing things, and then when I have enough things, I see what what you know where we're at with it. But I haven't uh, I haven't been to to work with John in person for some time, so I need to get you know get that sorted out and bring some stuff over there. But um, yeah, I've got a few songs I'm working on. But right now, I mean, the whole thing, my whole last sort of year has been taken up by setting up for releasing these two records and doing the other end of it. And not the um, so much the uh, musical art of it. Yes, but yes, yeah, but but I'm still still plugging away. I got a few songs. I'm kind of mix in mixing stage and three or four songs, and um, trying to get back, trying to get my head above water to uh, continue some writing. I have some seeds that need to be developed and things like that. But I guess it would be the next, uh, yeah, the next small square record. Yes. So at the moment, ours, ours, and others. Is that your latest project? That's the last one, yeah. Right. That's the new. That's the one that just came out in October. Yeah. That's the one that you you've got at the moment. So this is the the one that you've been working on a lot. So yeah. So is that kind of is that now available as CD and on streaming services? It is. Uh, the CDs are limited at the moment. We had just a, a, a an initial batch made, and um, I I don't know if they're um, still available. I think I think there's some at the label at the farm to label records.com uh, website maybe uh, the bandcamp site is out of them right now so but it's streaming everywhere it's like really everywhere it's been wide you know wide distribution so that's that's helpful for us yeah <laughs> but yeah we're sort of, uh, I, I released a video that i self-produced also and um um that was a couple of weeks before the record came out i put that out and we're gonna I'll try to release a couple more things, singles or focus tracks or videos and things like that as we go along here. Yes, absolutely. God. So that must be quite an exciting project that's kind of um, sort of kept you very busy in the last couple of years. Yeah, that's what I've been really working on at least this last year. And really, because I didn't I didn't know so much about how, how to do stuff in this modern environment, you know, the streaming stuff and all that and how and how how to really do it. And I so I had to learn kind of about marketing and um uh, with this kind of thing so i've been working on these things and setting up a lot of stuff that wasn't in place yet or was barely in place uh that you need to do all that stuff and um and i did the artwork for the cd i did that myself so that took a little doing and yes and most of the mixing i did all the mixing actually that but that was done before that was kind of during pre-lockdown and just early lockdown i guess <laughs> So yeah, but that's really taken up all my sort of the time and in, in the creative. Oh God, I, I could I could imagine actually because there's so with mm. all the songs on it like twenty three the the hourglass found object open up all these were sort of new songs that you've written recently. Yeah, they were at the time they were anyway. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Um, the, you know, like so when I work with John, since I I live so far from him, I go over there once or twice a year, and we do the basics for whatever um whatever kind of things we have and then if there's time left over we work further on it you know like i do vocals or we do other things or 
we have guests come in and play parts on songs, you know, that are people he works with or friends of his or friends of mine. And so those, the, these songs were done in that way um, to varying degree, you know, to different degrees, but um, all, everything was uh, started there and then uh, mostly finished here in my, in my little home studio. Yes. And I guess you, you, you don't have any problem getting guest musicians on, on your albums, do you, from the amount of work that you've done over the decades? No, we can call in some favors, but usually it's uh, like the, the, the guests on this one would be some guys that uh, we did a couple of big band sessions with, with a bunch of players. And those are guys that, that John had been working with kind of on a weekly basis, doing uh, projects for other uh, for other artists. Like what, what he does sometimes with his studio is a person will come in and want to make a, uh, a pro record. Like, and so he knows all, all these guys that can that do sessions, you know, and come in and they're great and they can learn songs really fast and they work with him and they basically kind of sometimes even write the songs for the people and help them, you know, do it. And they make like a nice record. So we use these guys on a few songs and um, those guys helped me finish a song, this song called open up. Um, we recorded with a bunch of people initially and again, yes. some other recording later, but um, that song wasn't a real song when I, a whole song when I brought it, I wrote it as just like a little intro thing to do live shows with where you sort of like, don't get a sound check and you play, you know, the drums come in, then the bass and the guitars. And it was just like one, one kind of part of a song, but the band chose that one to work with that day. So I said, well, it needs like a bridge. It needs, you know, another part or something like that, you know, some other bits to it. And so we sat there, all the, all the guys and, and us, and we just on the spot made up the music for this other part. And then later I wrote the, the sort of melody and words for that. But we recorded it, you know, after they made, we all kind of made the song together, which was cool. Um, so that's a one way that we hadn't really worked before. But um, we, we do like to get the people involved. The people that are playing, we like to get them. And first thing we do is we play them what we have and say, which one do you you know have any kind of a vibe for do you want to play on and then they choose one and then we we work it out with them from that point forward yes god that's fantastic yeah and did you enjoy making videos as well for the, the for the single um it was interesting yeah I, I like it but i don't i don't know how to do it really so i'm learning how to do it kind of but it was fun we had some footage that this this friend of ours took when he was shooting some promo shots and he um he took some video of us kind of miming to one of the songs so i used it and then I said, I don't have very much of it, so I'd have to figure out a way to <laughs> to uh, extend it into the whole the whole bit. But I think I can do something. I th I thought I could do something because of the the vibe of it to me suggested a certain kind of look. And so I thought I can I, I think I can do that. And I'm by no means a, a video guy, but um, yes, I, I achieved kind of what I was thinking of. So, but it was fun, and I I would I would try it again. I, I will try it again at some point. Fantastic. So the album is available as a CD streaming. Will you ever do vinyl records for it? Yeah, you know, we, I wanted to for this one. And it just at the time when we were looking into it, the things here were running so, so long, like they were like a year out almost or, you know, like eight or nine, 10 months out to, to get one. And, and it was it was a little too expensive for us to do at that point. Cause I really want to save some money to have some help with promotion. Yeah. So we kind of dialed that back and, and I, I'd like to release it at some point. I'd, I'd like to do both of them on vinyl, but especially this one, I'd like to release on vinyl. So there's kind of a plan in the, 
the back of my mind to do that yeah yes and do you still sort of keep in touch with rick do you sort of have any kind of musical ideas with him at all um we haven't done musical stuff in in a while but we have like ever since the 2019 velvet crush reunion thing that we did jeffrey and i have, have been writing songs back and forth since that time and you know sometimes faster or slower right now we're not doing too much but we've been working on things and we just did a velvet crush just completed a tour of spain together so that got everybody talking about doing some stuff so i think in the in the future we we will be ramping that up a bit and trying to maybe make some new velvet crush music but other than that i haven't rick rick doesn't um doesn't really do uh, his own recording kind of stuff or anything like that so that's that's a, a drawback for me because when somebody has a way to like do a part or do something you can really send stuff around and it's so great but he doesn't really have an easy way to do that so it would have to be something a little more formal um to to work with him yeah so and i you know i live in japan i live in japan so it's so it's hard to really collaborate in any other way uh, most of the time but but we are going to work be working on to answer your question yeah oh fantastic god do you still love playing live yeah, it's fun. Uh, you know, it was a little bit shocking to do Velvet Crush live after after so long not doing it because uh, playing bass and singing, I forgot that it's actually kind of hard to do for me. So. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but uh, we got through it. We actually had a really a really good um, little tour. We did um, like about seven shows in eight days or something like that in Spain, and uh, it was really good fun. Yeah, it was good, and the lovely um, fans over there that are like forever fans, you know that some of them were around and would bring me pick photos of us from, you know, when they came to our, our other in the nineties tours that we had done there and stuff like that. <laughs> it's funny how, how certain bands will have a country that, you know, Spain seems very loyal, Italy and also Germany is another country that, you know, I mean, I'm sure the other European countries as well, but I know a few. Yeah, for us, for us, Spain and Japan have been kind of lovely for us. And the odd thing about Spain is back when we were touring with Teeny Symphony, we were on like Sony doing sony tours right and and for some reason spain was not on that um route like right. we didn't go to spain we went you know we played like five shows in germany and played a bunch of shows in the uk and all this and all, all over every you know lots of other places not one show in spain and then finally we went there we did a, a festival there and the fans were like so great and they knew who we were and they had like the, that you know that flexi that you were talking about like people had that and they had these weird things that were impossible to find you know and we were like, why didn't we come to Spain ever? Why didn't someone send us? Why? You know, we didn't know that it was it was like that, but we should have been there from the from the get go. You know. Yes, it's very tricky, isn't it? I mean, just lastly, I mean, if you could have whispered something to your like sixteen year old self, starter, is there anything in particular that you'd have thought? Oh yes, I wished I'd told them that, or I wished I'd known this, or something. Um, <laughs> not really. Just you know, I think I would have said to. Uh, don't waste time and 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 be be good at what you're trying to do like practice and be really good as soon as you can you know like as much as possible but really uh, i feel like i wasted a lot of time um working on projects for too long or not working on things and i wish i hadn't done that you know i'd like to have had a, a larger output of right. stuff, you know but yes actually your this you know it's pretty impressive your discography i mean it's um You've certainly gone from you've you've certainly got a lot of albums, and also it's great that you've got your Sarah Records sort of connection and indie pop stuff. That's pretty cool. So um, it's it's because I guess with Sarah Records and Creation Records, that's pretty good for American blokes, right? 
Absolutely. And and also mm-hmm. the Bristol one as well, the subway organization. Subway so, well. so you yeah. do tick off most of the boxes. I'll be interested to know if you get much kind of curiosity after this latest book has just come out by Jane, whether um, there's going to be a few more people trying to d- discover your early back catalogue as well. Well, I had, I had a few a few people in America actually write and, you know, ask me about it. And uh, like they're doing like they would do like a, um, a weekly radio show or a, a podcast or something and they've asked asked me some questions about it so uh, it, it is definitely on some people's radar and uh maybe we'll get some people you know digging back through our through our sordid past to check it out and that was me in conversation with paul chaston finding out about his life in music and uh, various other indie bands from the 80s 90s and right through to the current day and as I said, he's got a new album out, The Small Square, which is um, available on digital download. And I do think Bandcamp, I'm guessing now, aren't I? Um, as well as various streaming sites. Um, the album is titled Ours and Others. I will try and put a link in the notes below. Anyway, a massive thank you to Paul. This has been the C86 Show, David East. So if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. Uh, all these uh, interviews have been archived. You can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam. It's true. Have a great week. Stay safe.